6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 25 through 30. Okay, let's get at it. We're studying the book of Psalms. And we are going to explore Psalm 25 through 30 this evening. And uh, Psalms, of course, just by way of uh, background review, is Israel's hymnal. They're poems really intended to be sung. It's uh, poetry laced with strong theology. It's astonishing to realize how much theology is in the Psalms and how much eschatology or prophecy. The Hebrew term really means praises. And 55 of them are expressly addressed to the chief musician of the temple. In the Greek, the term is samoi in the Septuagint. That's a poem to be sung to a stringed instrument. Or psalter, which is a, a harped or a stringed instrument. And that's, it's from the Greek that we get our English term psalms for the, this book. But the nature of poetry deserves some uh, perception here. You and I are familiar with in the West of poetry that's phonetically designed, how it sounds, in two different ways. By its rhyme, we think of poetry as rhyming normally, one way or another. And uh, also rhythm. There's a parallelism of time, both sound and time. That's what we think of as poetry. But not so in the uh, East or in, the, in Hebrew. They deal in a conceptual design. They take it a notch higher in a sense. They deal with parallelism, not of sound or time, but of ideas, and there's at least three different kinds. You can actually start, if you get down this path, you can categorize them several ways, but the easy way is they're com either comparative, where two lines are in comparison, that's to illuminate an idea, or contrastive, or antithetic, where two lines are opposites to get an idea across. And sometimes they're completive, or synthetic, as they say, where one completes the idea introduced by the other. Those are three patterns that we'll see all through the Psalms. And let me give you a piece of good news. I'm not going to try to analyze them. I want you to be aware of that, but I'm going to go the other way. You'll see in a little bit. There's also a term, there are many terms we'll encounter that are musical terms, but one repetitive term we'll run into again and again is Selah. And many people think that that is a, uh, a pause. It, comes, it, it really comes from, to be lift up or to stop um, so some people think it's a musical term. There are other experts that believe it's a pause to connect the ideas. It's a pause to consider. It's sort of a catch your breath and think through what we've just said kind of phrase. And uh, so there's different views on that. But on this parallelism, there's synonymous parallelism. That's where the second line restates the first. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? There are two lines that one just really restates the first. It's a form of emphasis. But again, the parallelism is conceptual, in this case, synonymous. Another type of parallelism is antithetic parallelism. That's where it's just the opposite. The lines are in contrast to each other. An example is, for evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. 
again, the two ideas that are in parallel are opposites to each other. And uh, so that's an, a, a different example. Then there's synthetic parallelism, and this is where each successive line expands or complements or supplements the previous one. And uh, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Those terms are not synonyms, but they're close synonyms, and they have slightly different implications. That's just an example that we explored when we were in Psalm 19. Psalms are sourced in many places. Seventy-three, virtually over, virtually over half of them, are attributed expressly to David. There's a dozen of them to Asaph, the head of the choir, twelve to the sons of Korah, and then a couple of Solomon, and then a few others. And then there's actually a third of them that are anonymous. We're not sure who wrote them. They're just traditional hymns, if you will. But let's put a caveat out. You know, I tend to be an engineer by background. My specialty is information sciences. I tend to be a quantitative guy. And so I run the risk, and especially in a study like this, is to be over-analytic, to look at construction, look at, look at uh, details that are really irrelevant, really aren't going to be help you embrace the Psalms. In some passages, especially in eschatology, that kind of precision and sensitivity to structure is crucial. But not here, I'm going to suggest. I want to caveat the other way so that we don't um, destroy the value of this for each individually. The emphasis in the Bible on animals is that ones that are clean are those that chew the cud. And that's not just a pun. It's, I think, an intended concept for us to understand. And that's what we're instructed to do. Jeremiah says, thy words were found, and I did eat them. John in, in Revelation 10 eats the little book and so forth. That's a, an idiom that's... Uh, it, chewing the cud was the key to clean sacrifices. One of the things we don't want to do, especially in this study, is get into what I call analysis paralysis. We're, we're so busy dealing with the structure and, uh, and we may miss the real gist of it. I don't know how many, many of you saw the movie The Dead Poet Society, where the instructor in the poetry class, first thing he had them do is read the first chapter of the textbook, and after they had it, he says, tear it out and throw it away, because he wanted them not to get involved in the analysis of structure. They wanted to understand what the poetry is. Well, that's sort of the kind of thing. I'm not going to ask you to tear any chapters out, but that's the idea. I don't want to blindfold our souls to what the real message in the Psalms are. And that also means I can't convey it to you. I want to give you enough comfort with it so that you can pick up where we leave, leave off to indeed meditate on them, because that's the only way you're going to really get it, not by my, my prattling up here. So we're interested in prayerful absorption rather than intellectual dissection. And so that's your challenge. So we'll, we'll hit the highlights of some of these psalms, but unless you take them and really meditate on them, you'll miss them. And uh, when I give you a reading assignment for next week, there'll be maybe five psalms for next week. Well, I want you to read them 75 times each. And you say, you want me to count? No, of course not. But the idea is I want you to really, don't just read them and say, okay, I'm ready now. No, meditate on reading. You won't really absorb them until you've really had some immersion in them, okay? And uh, so... The Psalms are not an intellectual exercise. They are a gateway to the presence of God, and you want to treat it that way. And so we're going to talk about Psalms 25 through 30. Well, excuse me. We're in a section, Psalm 25 to 39. We're going to take through 30 tonight. 
all the preceding Psalms that we've had, remember Psalm 2 and Psalm 19, there was a, they were grabbers. They were dramatic, pretty much. So they've been what I'll call sensational. The next 15 are more personal. They're more quiet. Uh, they're more intimate. They won't have the razzmatazz that some of them did before, but they have a depth of relevance to our day-to-day lives that may surprise you. They're less familiar, but they have much to say to us. They're applicable. Every one of these psalms are going to be applicable to the past, the present, and the future. In fact, uh, I'm going to give you a paradigm that you can just try on and see if it helps you. If it doesn't help you, throw it away. It's just an idea. These psalms have a past. We often try to estimate what was the predicament that caused David to pen that psalm. That can be useful. We noticed that there were some psalms that apparently had to do with uh, the trauma that he went through with Absalom's rebellion. And uh, that helps us try to understand what he was going through. Uh, but we're not sure that other psalms were absolutely at a loss to figure out how on earth he, I don't know how he ever penned Psalm 22. That's hard to even contrive a set of circumstances that would cause him to generate a, you know, a firsthand description by the Lord himself as he hung on the cross looking. I mean, come on, that's wild stuff. And also as I go through the commentaries, more often than not, our estimate of the predicament David was going through is an estimate. It's hard to prove. It's just uh, hopefully maybe helpful. The real issue of the psalm, in the present tense, is how, did this, how does this impact Israel? Many of them have operative implications for Israel today and for the future. And that's when we start to maybe get a glimpse of how it can impact you and I personally in the present, today. Well, how does any one of these psalms impact you today. For example, Psalm 22, gee, it's an astonishing portrayal of the crucifixion of Christ. Great, neat. How does that impact you today? Obviously, in many ways, but that's the point. That's the real issue. So we've got, in effect, three, you know, three Ps. If you've been in any decent seminary, you know, something can't be true unless it's alliterative. You know, it has to all start with the same letter, then you know it's true. And I'm being facetious, of course. But here we have the past, the present, and the personal. Those are three different seg- dimensions orthogonal dimensions probably of the, uh, of the Psalms, unless it has a personal impact. It, you, don't, you, never, you have to be able to answer the so what question. So what, do I, what does that mean to me? Okay, that's, I, I throw that out for what it might be worth. Let's just jump in. The first one of the evening will be Psalm 25. Now this Psalm turns out to be, it's amazing to me, first of all, many commentaries don't even notice that it's an acrostic Psalm. An acrostic psalm means that everything starts with, you know, A, B, C. Each one starts with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But then when you start digging into the, the, the few psalm commentaries that called my attention to the fact that it's acrostic, I jumped into it. Turns out it's not acrostic exactly. It turns out it's a broken acrostic. There are two letters missing. And one of, the, one of them established only by altering the punctuation of the Hebrew text as we received it. And then the last verse of the psalm breaks away from the alphabetic thing and just uh, it breaks outside that scheme altogether. Now, one the, the rabbinical literature suggests that this brokenness reflects the way troubles break the pattern of our life of, of life itself. Whatever we've got going on in our lives is broken up. Life happens that has different 
renderings on certain bumper stickers, but we'll just say life happens, right? Okay. See, if you look at Psalm 25 in the Hebrew, remember it goes from right to left. All, this, all languages flow towards Jerusalem, you know that. So, this, uh, uh, so it's, uh, it's uh, from right to left. Uh, you have Aleph, Bet, Gamma, and so forth. Well, the, the Bet is it, missing. There isn't one that starts with a Bet. So if you take those out, then it, if you just drop those two, then you'll discover that each letter, with those two exceptions dropped, um, are alphabetical. Each line uh, uh, starts with the, uh, the, 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 that sequential Hebrew letter in their alphabet, down to the Lamed in uh, verse 11, and from, and from 12 on it's the Mem, and on it goes all the way to the Tau, which is 21, and then the last line of the psalm drops away from that whole schema. And so it's a broken acrostic. So the people say it's not acrostic are, are correct, and those that say that it's acrostic are correct, so the reason is it's a broken one, okay? So I don't know what you're going to do with that piece of information, but I thought I would... I wasted a lot of time trying to figure, reconcile how could it be acrostic. I, I looked at it, and then I finally, you know, anyway, we sorted it out. Now, the first seven verses are a prayer. The next three are a meditation. Then the next verse is a prayer. And then the next uh, uh, four are meditation. And then it finishes uh, with a prayer. So it's prayer, meditation, uh, syncopated to some extent. And again, we can't fully appreciate this because it was in Hebrew and it was intended to be sung. So we have no idea how that would have been communicated. But we do know from this psalm, it emphasizes the fact that life is a rough road. The wet word way appears four times in just a few verses and the word path also. So it's all about the walk, life. And the psalmist cries out, to God for wisdom as he makes his decisions in verses 4 and 5. He's surrounded by his enemies, we discover, and enemies who hate him, enemies who lay traps for him, and want him to fail. How many of you have been in that kind of a situation? Okay. Um, we can make all kinds of conjectures as to what time in David's life was involved here, but it turns out there are a lot of candidates. But for 10 years, he was on the run, so it could have been any time during that. It could have been before then for some reasons. It could have been after. So I don't put a lot of stock on the conjectures that fill some of the commentaries because they are just that, conjectures. But David knows he is a sinner and doesn't deserve God's help. That's emphasized. And yet he relies on the goodness and the mercy of the Lord. So David is in a very good place. He's in trouble. He's got problems. We can relate to that. Let's hope we can relate to the rest of it because he knows he's a sinner. We know that. We are. And we know that we don't deserve anything. And, uh, but we can rely on the goodness and mercy of the Lord. And, and therein, that whole positioning is where Psalm 25 has a lot of relevance to every one of us sitting in this room. So let's go on. David succeeded in his journey because he held to three unwavering assurances, unwavering assurances, and that's what we too need to cling to. The first one is the help we need comes from God. First seven verses are really amplify that particular issue. Our God can be trusted is what then is underscored in the next few verses. And of course, trusting God thus brings us to victory. It's that simple, it's that direct, and yet it's just that profound. 
Don't let the simplicity deny us the relevance of that to every one of us where we're sitting, no matter what's going on in your life right now. The help we need comes from God. God can be trusted, and trusting him will give us victory. That's the essence of this psalm. Let's just jump into Psalm 25, first three verses. It's a psalm of David, expressly so. And this is going to reveal the dependence that David had upon God. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. Yea, let none that wait on thee be ashamed. Let them be ashamed which transgress without cause. <laughs> David was a warrior, right? I mean, war Woe to the warrior that discards his shield. And the shield, of course, is the Lord. It's interesting that let none that wait on thee be ashamed. Let them be ashamed which transgress without cause. Because shame is their fitting reward, is basically what David is declaring here. See, our help does come from God. This is a prayer that reveals the dependence David had upon God. Now, one day, Israel is going to also realize this the way David did. David understood it clearly in the Psalms. But these Psalms have an application to the nation also, both historically, present tense, and eschatologically, future tense. The day will come that Israel realized that their dependence does not come from the United States backing them. It's not going to come from the leadership sitting in the Knesset or wherever else. They're noticeably devoid of leadership, almost as devoid as, the Amer as America is. But the point is, one day Israel realized that their dependence can only, their help can only come from God. Their dependence is on Him. And the time will come when the remnant will find themselves in a position where that there is no one whom they can depend on but God himself. And that's exactly what the tribulation is all designed for. The great tribulation, as Jesus labeled it, is a period of time in which they're going to be driven to the wall. And Jesus says so in Hosea 5, last verse of that chapter. I'll return to my place until they acknowledge their offense. How can he re to return? He must have means he has left it. I'll return to my place until they acknowledge their offense. That's singular and specific. In their affliction, the great tribute, they will seek me earnestly. And indeed they will. And it's good for us, you and I, to come to that same place. In a sense, we're a micro-Israel also. We need to understand that our help comes from him. And uh, that's, that's our primary dependency. Let's move on. Verses 4 and 5 are probably in your, most of your memory list. Those of you that have been in the mem Scripture memory probably will recognize 4 and 5 as being very familiar in any case. Show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. There are three forms of guidance, moral, providential, and mental forms of guidance. They're all precious gifts of a gracious God. Moral, providential, and mental. They're gifts of a gracious God to a teachable people. The question is, are we a teachable people? 
You don't have to raise your hands, but are you a receptive student? It, will these work with you? Four times in just two verses, David applies for a scholarship in the College of Grace, if I can put it that way. Show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. For thou art the God of salvation. On thee do I wait most of the time? No, all the day. Let me bet you. Let's continue in verse 6. Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindnesses, for they have been ever of old. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. If you're an attorney in a courtroom, you place a great deal of emphasis on precedence. You build your case on precedence. Well, an unchangeable God, an immutable God, is the most effective argument to remind us of his ancient mercies and his eternal love. Because he is unchangeable, that's one reason our embracing the history of God's dealings uh, uh, is so valuable to us because he has an unblemished record of faithfulness and he's unchangeable. That's, why, that's what David's calling upon here. Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and loving kindness, for they have been ever of old. Why is that relevant? Because he doesn't change. He's still that way. Remember not the sins of my youth. Indeed, David had some, but he repented of them. Nor my transgressions, according to thy mercy, remember thou me for my sake? No, for thy goodness sake. God's reputation, in effect, is being appealed to here, Lord. So, okay, he, uh, he had three and eight. We've just talked about the first seven verses. The help we need comes from God. Let's go to the next unwavering assurances that David clung to. Our God can be trusted. See, when you pray, fix your eyes, as David did, on the fact that God is what? That he's good. That he's upright. That he's willing to instruct sinners. How condescending of him, but he's willing to do that. That he's loving, that he's faithful, that he's forgiving. These are <laughs> significant, demonstrable, proven attributes of the God that we fix our eyes on. And that's what we do when we pray. And what confidence we have in prayer is not because we pray well but because of the nature of the God that we, to whom we pray. He's what it's all about, not our skill, not our articulation. He's what it's all about. Our God is what we can trust, not our prayers. Our God is what we're trusting. Let's jump in. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore will he teach sinners in the way. The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth, under such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Again, it's a doing, not just hearing thing. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. For whose sake? My sake? No, for thy name's sake. Interesting. So the psalmist is reiterating his prayer for instruction in the way, the same thing we had in verses 4 and 5 are echoed here again. But now his prayer, although it echoes verses in 4 or 5, it's grounded in the revealed character of God. What man is he that feareth the Lord? 
Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. The way it's been put by some is that he who fears God has nothing else to fear. Boy, that's a, that's a soldier's creed, isn't it? His soul shall dwell at ease, and his seed shall inherit the earth. The secret of... I love this one. I really love this one especially. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. This is an admission of confidential intimacy. It's not seeing as believing. Believing is seeing. Neither natural wisdom nor human strength can force the door to this inner chamber. And anyone who doesn't understand the meaning of this verse will never learn it from any commentary. You, understand, you, either, you either experience this by your relationship with him or it's forever elusive to you. God has secrets. Amos 3.7 says, God will do nothing but that which he reveals to his servant, the prophets. In Genesis 18, God reveals himself to Abraham. Is Abraham not my friend? Shall I not tell him what I'm going to do? And it goes on with other passages all through the Scripture. Proverbs 25.2, it's, it's the honor of God to conceal a thing and the duty of kings to search out a matter. But there's also God, because of the, some of these secrets... It's his plan for your life. God has a plan for each of our lives. Jeremiah 29, 11 uh, highlights that and all the way through the scriptures. God has a plan for our lives and our great adventure is to discover what, they, what that is. Okay, let's take the third unwavering assurance that David has as he embraces this psalm. Trusting God brings us victory, David maintains. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music